So I should just give you a real quick announcement or a real quick update on the theater that we're building. Um, we are going to try for our, our inspections, our series of inspections this week. Uh, so we're really close. We're really close. Um, and our intention is that next week will be the last Sunday in this room, which means January 21st. It's just a little, little hot which means January 21st will be our first Sunday together in the new theater space. And if you don't know where that's going to be, it's just still in the mall, but it's in the second level right connected to the food court, actually directly across from the studio movie grill movie theater. So we're going to have our own really cool little theater up there. Um, so January 21st, just prepare yourself for that. Uh, this is a long text. Furthermore, it is uh, a difficult text to understand. So sometimes I know some of you, when it comes time to read the text, you just sort of wait for your neighbor to tell you what it said or whatever. You really want to read this one, okay, because it's going to bother you. And if you don't read it and engage in this next little part, it won't bother you enough for the rest of it to be interesting. So let this text do what it, whatever it's going to do to you, let it do it. So I'm going to give you uh, a good four or five minutes to read this on your own. If you don't have one of these uh, scripts here, you can, you know, I don't know, look online, Luke 16, 1 through 16. So I'm going to give you a few minutes, just read this quietly to yourself. Try to take in the whole story here. Let's have one big group discussion. Uh, we, have, we might have a couple of mics running around. So just, what do you, you have a question, you have a thought, you have an idea, okay. Start right there. I guess one thing that like really confuses me about this passage is the fact that the manager knows he's getting fired and yes, he's still hanging around. You know what I'm saying? And I guess maybe there's a cultural disconnect here somehow because in our culture, if I knew I was gonna get fired from my company, I wouldn't stick around, I would just leave. Yeah. And they usually escort you out or security will come get you or something. So there's some, some difference here. He, he still has a, a moment of opportunity to seize upon his former title and where he's still known as this man's agent, as his sort of fiscal sponsor in the world. And he capitalizes on that moment. What else? Really? Nothing. Okay, come on. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a few things that confuse me. Um, that's not hard, though. <laughs> um, so uh, nobody else thought that was cool. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So um, he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. But then on the juxtaposition of that, he says, uh, you can't serve two masters. Um, not, you know, you can't serve both God and money. So it, I mean, that's just one of the things, but that just really like, I didn't know what to do with that. No, it's good. And, and maybe the, maybe the, the verb is the key there that it hinges on the question of using and serving. So he's saying, use money, serve God. You, you have a choice to make with these sort of things. You can either use a thing or serve a thing. And the problem, of course, is that we all think of ourselves as people that use money. No, we don't worship it. We don't serve it. But 
in point of fact, what happens is that thing that we use becomes something that begins to use us. It begins to own us, possess us, lead us. And before you know it, really, we're living for it. And there is, I would say it's a subtle distinction, but it isn't that subtle. It's actually quite grotesque and profane when you really see it happening. Okay, yeah. So 11, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Um, what's the true riches? Is that like spiritual or is that like a lot of money? Or what are we talking about here? Oh, that's a big question. Because um, then it's like, okay, I you know have a financial advisor on earth and I'm doing all this well, then that means I get something awesome. But that's a true rich, you know, that's something that true riches. <laughs> something better. Something is that better. what is that what Jesus is saying, Brian? No, so, so, of course, this occurs in a context. A, a context, if we want to remember, the, the chapter before this is Luke 15. That's important. I want to line that up for you. Uh, Luke 15 is the story, the, two, the stories of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son. And, and the, the, I don't know, the, the world rocking that those stories are. Something is happening here, and I, I'll get into it. I'll try to answer that question with my part, with my comments. But uh, something else is being offered here as a different kind of currency uh, in this world. And we have a choice to make. And you're only going to live in this world for a certain period of time, a very short period of time. And, and in theory, at least if you believe Jesus, you will live in eternity. And that is a lot longer than this life. And so the currency that makes this life work uh, is nothing. It's worthless when, when stacked up and compared to this other currency, a currency which we store up for ourselves in heaven. Jesus said in another place, don't store up treasure on this earth where moth and rust destroy, but instead store up treasure in heaven. This is like possible. It's possible to live in such a way and to make choices even with your money in this life that store up for you treasure in heaven, something that lasts forever. I mean, even if you're just thinking in a self-serving way, you're thinking about investments. Oh, some, of you, some of you weird millennials are into Bitcoin and whatever right now. Just chill on that, first of all. But second, uh, you really want a good investment, then think about treasure in heaven. A couple more. Brian, it's We're, me. Hey, Ryan. Hey, so um, the beginning of this says the rich man was accused of wasting his possessions, and they asked him, what, did he, what is this I hear about you? And I kind of, um, it, it's something that leaves a sour taste in my mouth, like people's opinion of you is the thing that actually gets you canned, <laughs> which, which may be speaking volumes to this guy's ability to, to manage, right? Like his problem isn't necessarily resources, his problem is actually relationships, and if he had better relationships, uh, he wouldn't even be in this position in the first place. Uh, there, there's something to that. I don't know if there's an eternal, uh, you know, catch to that. But, you know, clearly this would not have even happened had he uh, been treating the people he was managing, or at least those affected by the resources, much, 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 much better. 
Yeah, the word there is waste or wasting, which is, by the way, exactly what the word prodigal means. So when, when the story of the prodigal son is the story of the wasteful son, that's, that's what that word means, the story of the wasteful son. And here we are now with another story of a wasteful person, a wasteful manager. Uh, and it, I think it helps to actually consider them side by side. They're, they take the same form in terms of the way that the story is told. They follow each other. But it's a question of like, he is wasteful. And he, Jesus calls him later dishonest. So he actually gives him the term. He's, he's, he is dishonest and wasteful as a manager. And yet he is somehow redeemable in this story. There's something good about him or the, 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 the you know, boss, the master kind of likes him. It's troubling. What else? Over here. Yeah, it's me. I'm, I'm back over here. Oh, Lucas. Um, yeah, I think you just alluded to it, but I think the shock of the story for me when I read it is that response of the master because the guy, the guy isn't doing it from a motive of I want to please the master. It, it's, it reads as if he's just trying to cheat the master or like just he's just trying to figure out his life after he's fired. Yeah. And he goes around and actually cuts all these bills just to settle up with these guys, and that's losing the master money. So you get to that response from the master, and you expect him to be furious or angry, or, yeah. and yet he commends him for being what? I don't know, creative? or yeah. I'm, it, yeah. it, It's shocking. I mean, anybody else bothered by that? No, no, everyone's also fine with it and whatever. Are you really okay with that? Do you think this is like a moral story about a guy who cheats his boss on the way out and gets praised for it, you know, high five. And this is Jesus telling the story. It's not some questionable person with questionable morals. You know, this is Jesus saying, this, is, this, this somehow reminds us of the kingdom. <laughs> 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 Dishonest people getting ahead by taking advantage of other people, taking other people's money. It's good, okay, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I kind of feel like it's almost like the stock market to where you, sometimes you just have to cut your losses. Like if the master was expecting no return on his investment and he's surprised by uh, at least you got 50, 60% back, you know. Oh, you think he was going to go steal everything or something? Yeah, or something like that. If he's like, <laughs> okay. you've just, you know, spent all my, you know, investment, just get out. And he's like, well, at, at, you know, here's 60%. Okay, I'm sorry. And then his friends, who, who he cut a deal with, they like him now. Maybe he's got more work opportunities. You know, I don't know. It's, well, it that's is why shrewd. he does it. No, that's why he does it. Yeah. yeah. To get friends so they can be like, you know, you owe me a favor. Remember when I helped you out with that mm -hmm. thing and we stole money from the guy? Yeah. <laughs> like uh, extortion or something. One or two more? What about over here? Hi. Hey. Yeah. So... Um, so I caught on to something, to something that you had just said, like that somehow this is a reflection of the kingdom of God. And I was like, well, actually it is. Uh, <laughs> in the sense that, you know, this person is doing something dishonest or whatever, but aren't we all, you know? And then how much grace does God show us? Because dudes should be in prison. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the rich man shows him a lot of grace Good. in this moment. So That's great. Good observation. Let me jump in. Uh, there's a few things that this, few things I think that this text does beautifully, and it's my intention to illuminate that a little this morning. One thing is that it, that it does is that it shifts the focus 
to what is important. Maybe there's some kind of confusion on that for us. What really matters? What really has value in this life? Two, I think it makes us consider eternity right now in the situation we are in right now. Three, I think it reveals something extraordinary, I mean truly extraordinary, about God. And lastly, I think it reminds us of the good news itself, the good news of the kingdom. So if you'll give me a few minutes, I want to unpack that for you, those four things that this text does beautifully. Lord, I pray this morning that you would open up our hearts, not just to learn something or think about the world in a different way, but to your voice, to actually hear you whisper in our ears something about our lives that draws us closer to you, that makes us more holy, more beautiful to you, more powerful in the world, more like you. I pray that for every single person breathing air in this room, in Jesus' name, amen. So my oldest daughter, JL, some of you may have seen this on social media, uh, let us know this Christmas that she is expecting, that she's pregnant. She's married, so don't, it's not a bad story, it's a good story. Um, and so the way that she did it was that she uh, took a little sort of small stocking, you know, Christmas stocking, and put, you know, I, I forget, what did she write on it, Monica? Like, baby on the way. Thank you, Cindy. Baby's on the way. And so she stuck it in a box, and she wanted us to open it, and it was before Christmas, and so we opened up the box, and baby's on the way. We got, you know, it was like a, it was a subtle message that she was pregnant, and so we all celebrated, whatever, but Luke wasn't there. Luke is the 16-year-old. So Luke wasn't there. So later, JL chooses to tell Luke by showing him the little stocking, baby's on the way. So here's his older sister coming to, her, coming to him and say, you know, check it out, baby's on the way. But the problem is that when Luke heard that, when Luke saw it, he got so furious. I mean, furious. And he gets mad. He has a little temper thing. And uh, he just started kicking the wall and throwing things. What, what is going on? No! I, no! No! Running around back and forth. No! I can't, I don't know how to feel about this. I don't like it. He thought she, he, she was saying that Monica was pregnant. <laughs> no! The truth is, if, if, if that was the message, I would have been kicking the walls also with him. <laughs> no. I don't know how to feel right now. I don't know how to feel. <laughs> Something like that happens to us here, I think, in this passage. We, get, we can get worked up a little bit about a passage like this. I mean, how could you, Jesus? Why? It's hard enough to keep people honest and moral, and now you're going to reward them in your, in your stories and tell them it's okay to be dishonest. We have enough problems around here as it is. Don't tell people they can lie and cheat and steal. But the problem is it's not, it's not so much that, that um, Jesus is condoning the dishonesty. I, I just, we, need to, we need to sort some things out here this morning. It's not so much that the master or even that Jesus is condoning the dishonesty. It's just that he's more impressed with something else, more impressed with this relational 
forward-thinking gesture from this man. And maybe, maybe he's even pleased with what he chooses to do with his last dishonest move, which is, think about it, it is to help people. It's actually to give. This story nestled here in Luke 16 is about giving money away. That's what it's about. Instead of trying to keep too much of it for yourself. And there is a reading of this text which sees the work or the, 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 this last ditch effort of this man as stealing. And that's a, certainly a viable argument. And I may actually may, may want to make a case for that too, albeit in a different way later. He does not have the right to forgive these debts. He is taking something from the future wealth of the manager, and it is wrong. It is, it is wrong. But I want to stop for a second, and I want us to think about and remember who's talking. Remember what all of this is actually about. I mean, does oil or wheat... By the way, this is vast sums of money. We're talking about somebody that, that in, a, in a sort of land-owning agrarian system to have this kind of debt held to you or owed to you means that this, this, this person, whoever this person is, is, is dealing in massive amounts of money. But does oil or wheat or any expression of wealth in this life really matter in the face of the expanse of eternity? And when we think about it, then we have to think about these things, how do they, how do they sort of make sense in the light of eternity? And in that sense, well, they're virtually worthless, actually. When we think about what would 450 gallons of oil be worth in eternity, it's virtually nothing. And maybe, maybe we've misunderstood this particular rich man because there's something that, that lasts. There are things in our lives that last. They echo into eternity and things that don't. And we always get those things confused. We have a bias toward things which are temporal, and we actually have a blindness towards things which are eternal. And this is, a, this is a fatal flaw for the human race, because actually we, we, we often can't tell the difference, and even when we can, even when we say this thing is eternal, this thing is right now, we still sometimes choose the thing which is right now. Maybe, maybe we've misunderstood this particular man. Maybe he's not rich because he's hard or heartless or tight-fisted. Perhaps he's become rich exactly by this kind of move. I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say, but I wonder if he's commending the guy because he likes it because he sort of sees himself in it. There's some sort of mirror here. Maybe this man is generous. Maybe this is how he is. Maybe this is how he's got ahead in life. Maybe he likes to give people discounts. Maybe he likes to help them. Maybe he likes to give out favors for money, in place of money. Maybe he sees himself somehow mirrored in this gesture. He admires it because it's clever and kind and merciful and so like him. I mean, I, the, the, the best uh, representation of this in my own life would be my kids getting in trouble in school. And that happens a lot. I don't, it's hard for you to believe because I, I've raised such godly children, but occasionally they get in trouble in school. That was sarcasm, by the way. I know you missed it, but um, sometimes my kids get in trouble in school. 
All the time, my kids get in trouble in school. <laughs> kind of all of them, actually. And I always had this problem. I don't know, maybe if you're a parent, maybe you've had this problem. You hear the story of the kid getting in trouble, and you're waiting for the part that's wrong. You know? Okay, what'd you do? You know, I said, it's an example. Luke, Luke not, not long ago, maybe it was last year. Uh, no, it was probably this year. No, I think it was, anyway. He said, he, teacher said something, and he said, and I'm sorry, please forgive me for this, and we can take it off the tape later or whatever, just, I, sometimes I'm crass, I don't mean to be, but this is what he said. He said, D's nuts. He said, like, D's nuts, whatever. He, that was his response to the teacher. That's not appropriate. I know that that's not appropriate. Shouldn't say that in class or in mixed company or anything. The problem is, we, that joke is probably said 16 times a day in my house. <laughs> the boys are just on it. That's just their joke. That's what they use. And so to Luke, it was just a common thing. Also, I believe, so I hear this story, and I'm like, you said what? He said this to the teacher. And I just think, okay, and so you got thrown out, and now you can, can't go back to the class. And I just think, that's not, that's not appropriate you know, dispensing of punishment or justice. But the truth is, when I hear that, I think to myself, that's not so bad. And the reason why I think it's not so bad is because there's something else going on which I like and admire. Now, that isn't right. He shouldn't say that. I, I can admit that. It isn't right. Of course, I can see that that isn't appropriate, isn't helpful for the teacher. But there's this other thing going on, you see. It's my son trying to be clever. It's my son trying to bring joy to a joyless environment. It's my son trying to, trying to help trying to help this little small slice of the human race get through the suffering which is in front of them. And that I like, that I admire. The class clown is playing a key, crucial role in human society. Think about it. So I, I, I like, it reminds me of that scene in Talladega Nights when, the, when, the, when the, they're having the prayer and then the, boy, the, the bratty little boys are talking, tra talking bad to their grandfather. Remember that? No? You remember that? Chip? They're talking to Chip? I'll jump on you like a spider monkey or whatever they're saying. And, and, and Chip, the grandfather's like, you know, get your boys in line. And what does he say? I like the way they're talking to you, Chip. My boys are winners, you know. <laughs> that isn't right, but what he likes is the, the gumption, the sense of, the, of course, there's so much wrong about that scene, but <laughs> it's a bad example, but it's, that, it's the mirroring. He, he likes that they're sassy because he thinks that's what makes a person successful, is sort of being sassy. There was a study, a really fascinating study that I read some years ago, that, that sort of links the way that we parent our kids to the, the reality of the life that we lead. So, for example, if you work in a factory, then the way you're going to parent your kids is about, uh, you know, following directions and being able to be a cog in a wheel because that's your reality. So then the way that you, essentially, what parents are trying to do subconsciously and sometimes consciously is prepare their kids for the world they live in. 
And so uh, a kid that wants to be creative or think outside the box or whatever, that's going to get knocked down because the truth is that doesn't work in the factory life. And I got to prepare you for this world in which I live in. A similar study was done with, to look at, to, to compare not just factory workers, but university professors and the way that they parented their kids. And it's a totally different world. And so the idea is about being free thinking. The idea is about looking outside of the way that things are outside the box. And so they're going to parent their kids totally differently to prepare them for the world that they live in. <clears throat> how do we help? Uh, we're thinking, how do we help our kids navigate the world we believe they will step into, the world we are from. In a real sense, this is what Jesus is doing for us all the time. He's trying to make them think about their eternal home, their destiny. He's always preparing his kids for the world he's from and the world that they will one day go into. But the truth is, it's just so foreign, you see, to us that we have trouble understanding it. So this guy is overstepping. It isn't right what he does. But what he's doing is helping people. He is giving something away. Yeah, I've never heard of this. Maybe you have. I've never heard of someone being, uh, you know, embezzling money, for example, to give away to the poor. I've never heard of that. I, maybe it's possible, but I've never heard of so. I'm trying to. I'm trying. Let's just do like an exercise in imagination. Let's imagine there's a church and there's a church leader, and that church leader for years has been embezzling money to give it away to like widows and orphans and poor people around the world. What do you do with that person? I mean, you you, you probably. Have to, I'm just trying to imagine being the 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 board. Uh, for that, that church, and you find out that, okay, you come in here, is it true that you've been embezzling money for all these years? Yes, I have. And so we, we understand that you've embezzled more than a million dollars from this church congregation for all these years. That's right. And, and we also understand that you've given all the money to widows and orphans and poor people. Is that right? Yes, that's right. How do you feel as a board member? What do you what do? You do? You're like, ah, we're going to have to fire you, man. But good job, you know, I, of course you have to be fired, but, you know, we love your heart. This is, this is the problem with this text, partly, is that the, the master even, who even though it's his money that, that he, he gave away, he's still sort of proud of him for giving it away, proud of him for thinking about the future, for thinking about eternity for thinking about something beyond his right now. It pleases him somehow. I think that's really interesting. I mean, it's a little self-serving, but even that's important because he makes this choice, which is self-serving, but in a way that thinks about the future. If I steal this money now, I'll set myself up for the future. I'll have influence over these, with these people in the future. I'm storing up something for myself in the future. And even that, Jesus seems to like. He likes that. He's not afraid of that logic. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, but instead store treasure in heaven, he said. He's not saying don't care about treasure. He's just saying don't settle for the wrong kind of treasure. 
which we do. Which brings him to the second observation here, the second thing which I think is sort of beautifully handled in this text. It, this text makes us consider eternity right now. I used to know a guy, I used to have, be friends with a guy. I'm still friends with him, but I, I don't see him very much anymore. And he used to always tell me, Brian, he, he played the lottery. He, he would always like get his lottery ticket every week or whatever. he had some kind of ritual that he had with the lottery. And he would always tell me, Brian, when I win the lottery, I'm going to give a lot of money to the underground. He would always tell me that. Brian, every time I see him, when, when I win the lottery, I'm going to give a lot of money to the underground. Can you imagine what, how I felt about that? Just try to, try to get into my head for a second. I always felt like, really, when you win the lottery? Really? Then you're going to give some money to the underground? In fact, uh, I, I, I one time said to him, well, bro, you did win the lottery. You're an American. You already won the lottery. Our minimum wage pays more in an hour than most people can earn in three days in this world. That's our minimum wage. You already won the lottery. Everyone in this room has already won the lottery. And if you don't give now, please stop lying to yourself and pretending that you will if you won the lottery or when you come into your fortune or when you get out of college. Even more than that, some future you is now what is being, it's not what's being questioned here. It's not what's being threatened here. It's the present you. It's the present you. Whatever you have now. Whoever is faithful with a little, Jesus is saying, will surely be faithful with a lot. And actually, somebody who isn't faithful with a little probably shouldn't even be given more. This is good stuff. This is hard, but important. This is not a single person in this room that this does not apply to. Uh, the other day, we, we were, um, my, two of my kids, Noah and, and Luke, were helping out move some things uh, around the hub. And so it was a long day they'd spent, you know, lifting and, and uh, loading and moving stuff, and so they were pretty wiped out, but they came, they came back to the hub, and we were sort of, uh, the people that had been working were there, and, and I, I forget exactly what, what I said, but I said to Noah, I said, well, are, you, are you guys done? Are you done for the day? He said, yeah. I said, do, do you have a little bit longer to help me with something else? And Noah looked at me, and he was like, <clears throat> huh. He kind of had this, if you know me, then you've probably felt this at some point where you sort of look like, hmm, what's the answer here? What's the right answer here? And then Luke, who was sitting nearby, yells across, he yells over to where he is, he goes, it's a test. <laughs> it's a test. And Noah said, I think it's really good, Noah said back to him, he goes, I know it's a test. Everything's a test. This is my, my kids understand they know that's exactly right. They know, at least with me, everything is a test because life is a test and everything in this life is a test. It's a test of your integrity. It's a test of your values. It's a test of your character. It's a test of what you believe and what you don't believe. It's a test of who you are. Everything. Everything you do, everything you say, everything you think is a test. I said, Brian, that's so, that's so anxiety-producing. I, I know. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? 
so much of the, 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 the scriptures is meant to really make us evaluate ourselves, actually. Life is a test. How will you handle it? And part of one of, the pro- one of the great mysterious promises of Scripture is that God is preparing you to rule and reign with Him. It's crazy. Isn't that, I mean, one of the promises is that you will be with Him one day in eternity. And that's enough. That's not the only promise that He's making. He's also making that one day we will be made like Him, actually. And not just that, but He's also promising that we will somehow feast with Him And then not just that, but he's promising that we will actually be glorified and rule and reign at his side. God is preparing us in this life for something, for an extraordinary gesture of leadership in the life to come. You think these choices that we make now, uh, they're just about the choice itself or somehow making God happy or mad or somehow seeing yourself in a category of right or wrong. But the truth is it's it's about preparation, (laughs) actually. This is a 70-year internship that you're in. And it's all preparing you for an eternal reign, eternal destiny. And if you squander this, if you do this poorly, it affects you for eternity. It does. At least that's what Jesus is teaching. And so will you, the question is now, this life is a test. How will you handle it? Will you rule over your little kingdom of wealth justly? Because all of us have a, a, king, a little kingdom of wealth. We do. Even those of you that have the very little, the least among us, you still have some wealth to manage. Or will you be a selfish despot? Will you, will, you, will you rule over your kingdom relationally with concern for the poor in a way that reflects the kingdom and the teaching of Jesus? Or will, it, will you just be a selfish tyrant? Social psychologists have come up with this, this, this concept called the bystander effect, which I think is actually really important here because there's something that happens in the bystander effect called the diffusion of responsibility. The bystander effect simply defined is something that occurs when the presence of others discourages an individual from intervening in an emergency situation. So in other words, something is going on, someone's being mugged or harmed or something, the, 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 the sort of landmark, the thing that, that, that catalyzes this this form of research it actually happened in 1964 a woman named uh, Kitty Genovese I think was was murdered in in the Bronx maybe and all of these people watched it happen from their stoop and and no one did anything no one intervened and so the question began why what what, what is what is it about human beings that we can see something extraordinary happen but because there's a lot of people watching none of us feel like any of us should do anything this is the bystander effect And what happens in those situations, why we don't step in, is what's called the diffusion of responsibility. We feel like because surely someone will do something. Someone else will. Look at all these people who are are seeing the same thing I'm seeing. Surely someone is going to do something about it, so it doesn't really need to be me. But the problem is everyone's thinking the same thing, and so it's actually possible for no one to do anything. It would be better for you in an emergency for there to be one person watching. Because then that person feels some sense of responsibility. It doesn't get diffused to other people. They feel like, well, it's on me. If I don't help, then no one will. And the problem is, the problem is that the church itself, we as Christians, we, we, we suffer. We are so guilty of the bystander effect, particularly as it pertains to our money. 
Most Christians give away about 2% of their income. That's staggering. Most American Christians, who are among the wealthiest people in the world, give away less than, less than a people who were under the law and who had not experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, who had not tasted the resurrection of Jesus, and yet we still can't even give 10% of our income away. Churches don't do much better. So when we get in groups, we do the same. We spend all the money that we take in on ourselves. Oh, and some of you in this room, you'll be like, that's right, churches shouldn't do that. Churches should be given more money. But the truth is you don't. So you want to be critical of a church which is not generous, churches which are not generous, but somehow not asking ourselves to carry that same burden to actually feel the same level of integrity about it. And so we watch, we all watch while we hoard our wealth in the body of Christ in one place. We hold it all in our hands and the needs of the kingdom and kingdom people don't get met. I'm not, by the way, I'm not trying to be mean or harsh. Um, I really love you. And this pro- some of this doesn't, doesn't apply to some of you, but it's, it's just real. We, uh, we have to face this. This is the, the people that we come from. And, and the truth is, the way that the Western church lines up with a text like this or with the teaching of Jesus on money is just so far from who he was and what he wanted that we have to have the courage to say, Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to be different. We have to, we have to want to be different. And I think, and, and, and it's, it's always the case, when we're this far away from the heart of Jesus, it means that we are the losers. It means that there is something beautiful, extraordinary about the kingdom which we are not laying hold of, which we cannot understand or taste or experience because we just aren't trusting Jesus and his way and his view of the world. Jesus is not diffusing responsibility. The truth is we just think, well, yeah, there's all these needs. We know there's all these poor people. We know that, that, that the gospel needs money to expand. We know that all these great things, even that the underground does, it's amazing. We love it. We're so behind it. But I just, I can't do anything. And plus, there's all these other people. Somebody else will give money. I mean, other people are going to give money. But the problem is that's what's happening. That always is what's hap- what happens in the Western world is this diffusion of responsibility. Somebody else will do it. Somebody else will take care of it. It's not that you don't believe that there's a problem. It's not that you don't believe that there's a need. It's that you think it just somehow doesn't apply to you. Jesus is not diffusing responsibility. He's asking you directly. Eternity starts now for all of us. I mean, guys, if you, if you have $10 a week that comes to you, you have something to steward. You have something to steward, something to answer for, something that could grip your heart instead of God, and something to use actually to see the world changed, to see the face of God revealed in this most superhuman act, giving. Whoever is faithful with a little, Jesus says, uh, probably will be faithful with more. So those of you that feel like, well, I don't have a lot, this, this is perfect for you. This is your moment. Then be faithful with the little that you have. And some of us have actually quite a lot, but we don't think we do because we, don't, we just don't put it in proper perspective. 
I'm, I, know, I know myself to be extraordinarily wealthy in, the, in the, any sort of sober analysis of the world. And I, I probably make less than a lot of you. But the truth is, we have so much. And by the way, uh, it's okay to feel some sense of gratitude about that even, to say, thank you, Lord, that we have won the lottery. And now please make us faithful with what you put in our hands. Giving is such a deeply important Christian discipline and one that's neglected for every kind of reason. Some neglect it just because they're greedy. I mean, the truth is you just don't want to give it away. This probably doesn't apply to many of you, but it might. So just, just if this touches your heart, let it. Just, just because you don't want to, just because you'd rather keep it for yourself. It's greed. Some neglect it because they overestimate their own needs, actually, because they think, well, I'd love to give, I want to, but I just can't because I have all these things I need. And then you look at things like your Netflix account or your road trips you want to take or your nights out on the town. or it's, it's not probably the most honest appraisal of need. Some neglect it because they're blind to both the need and the effect it can have. That's also possible. It's possible. We just don't know how, how desperate the church, the body of Christ, the people of God are in other parts of the world. And maybe even, maybe even some of us in this room that could really use help. And some neglect it, I think, because they don't know it's something that Jesus expected them to do. Now, this I want to I say something about this. It is, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sort of waking up, coming to terms with the possibility that there could be people in this room that are not giving, that don't, have not sort of pressed into the discipline, the Christian discipline of giving and tried to be sacrificial in their giving because no one has actually ever discipled you to do that. And I want to actually take a second to take responsibility for that and maybe say that at least, at least in terms of the underground community, that could be partially my fault. But I'm going to tell you why. This is not an excuse, it's just why. When we started the underground, whatever, 10 years ago, there was both, I think it's sort of a, a, it's a sort of perfect storm combination of, uh, you know, we were all, most of us that were, that were part of that early group of the underground, we were already so hardcore and so committed that all of us, of course we were giving our money away in the kingdom. It wasn't something we needed to talk about. It wasn't something we needed to harp on because... Obviously, that's what you do. That's what everyone does. We were missionaries so deep in our core, so deep in our DNA, that every single dollar we had, it's almost like you have to decide, do I want to spend this on groceries? Or it's just, I could do, this dollar could do something else in mission. So even, even those decisions were just so missionally driven or biased. The other, the other thing that kind of was part of that perfect storm was that we, we all came from church traditions, which love to talk about offerings and and, and always trying to get money. And then when they got the money, they were wasting it. And they were using it in a way that just made us sick to our stomachs. So the truth is, we just wanted to distance ourselves from that stuff. I, I want, we wanted to be different. I, I didn't want to ever talk about money, actually. And for, for a number of years, we didn't. We just didn't. 
And partly because I felt like we didn't need to, like there's a trust factor there, but also partly because I just, I just had a bad taste in my mouth about it. It feels like every time somebody gets up like me right now in front of a room, it's always self-serving. If they want to talk about money, they, they want to act like they're teaching Jesus, but really what they're trying to do is just get bigger offerings. And that, that kind of self-serving dynamic made me want to step away from it here. And then some of us thought, well, don't worry about it. It'll, get ha- it'll happen in microchurches. People will d- get discipled one-on-one, and they'll learn to give as we learn in our microchurches anyway, all the things of the kingdom. But the truth is that has not happened. In 10 years, you guys do not talk to each other about money. You don't. It's a, it's a taboo subject. And maybe that's just a cultural reality that we have to take a deep breath and recognize is there. We don't talk to each other about our weight or how much we make. We just don't do it. It's just off limits. It's like cultural off limits. Am I right? You don't go to somebody who goes, so tell me, tell me how much you're making this year. Well, how much are you going to give away? Does anyone do that? If someone did that to you, how would you feel about it? You'd be like, okay, listen, uh, I don't, we're not that close. And also, I don't, nobody's actually that close. And this is weird. Please don't do this. I'm out of this microchurch. Can you imagine? It's, it's like, I don't know, your normal microchurch gathering meeting or whatever. You're like, okay, today we're all going to put our, 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 our money on the table. We're all going to talk about how much we make and how much we're going to give this year. Can you imagine that meeting? Can you, everyone's just sort of squirming like, what is happening? No, we're not going to do this. This is, it's culturally a gauche. It's just off limits. People don't do it. So maybe what I recognize is that the only real place that we're even, we would even consider listening to something like this is, is a setting like this. A little anonymous, but close enough. And the truth is, I want to I say I'm sorry for those of you who maybe have not been properly discipled in the criticalness, just how central this is to the heart and teaching of Jesus, and we've maybe kept away from it. And that's harmed you because you should know that this is important. There is, a, there is like a, a, a whole arena, a whole field of grace here for you. And because of my own fear of seeming self-serving or my own you know, jadedness or whatever, we've held back from sharing. And we need to, we need to make that right. The truth is, I don't, if you, if you open up my heart and look inside, I don't really care where you give. I'd love for you to give to the underground because I think the underground is one of the best things in the world that you can give to. But the truth is just, I don't really care where you give, just that you are people that do it and do it with abandon and they're sacrificial. That's what I think ultimately matters to God and it certainly, I, I want to say, is really what matters also to me. So forgive me for that, but allow me also to, I don't know, make it right. This is important, and every single one of us should take it seriously. The third thing that this passage does beautifully is it reveals something extraordinary, I mean really extraordinary about God. Why are the Pharisees so scandalized by this? I mean, it says because they love money, but something about this, this story just really bothers them. And maybe it bothers you too. This story, as I've said before, sits between two other stories. One of the wasteful son and the prodigal. And then this wasteful manager story. And then what will be the poor man uh, named Lazarus, which comes next. This is where this story sits in between those two stories. It's like God is rewarding people 
who do not deserve reward in each of the stories, who have not earned it. It's a series of frustrating, theologically confounding stories for those hardworking, upright religious people who are listening. It's just really frustrating. Because in all these stories, the wrong person is getting rewarded. And they're not just stories about grace or mercy, but they're stories about God himself. They peel back a veil that covers the tender, almost nonsensical love that God has for people. I mean, it is, it, these stories are offensive to the self-righteous, frustrating to those who want to gain favor from God by being better than other people. Jesus is rocking their world. And I, I just want to take a step back. As I said earlier, you can look at this passage and see that he's stealing. Uh, uh, you know, and, and maybe it's not so much stealing because the, the master doesn't really value things in the same way. But let's just say it's stealing. And let's just, let's just admit maybe it is a certain kind of stealing. And then let's, let's take it even a step further and actually let's admit that ministry itself is stealing. Mission, the thing which we have all been called to do, evangelism is stealing from the master. We are taking what is not ours. We are canceling debts we have no business canceling. Debts that are infinitely greater even. And here's the thing. That pleases, this pleases God. To give away recklessly for our own benefit what is His. Because His name is Grace. He is love itself. He loves liars and cheaters. He loves, he loves his debtors. That's what we can't understand about this story. That's what we can't sort of put into the story. The possibility that the master is happy that this guy gave away his wealth because he likes his debtors. Who'd you give the extra bushels of oil? Who'd you give the extra bushels of wheat to? You know, Phil? Oh, I love Phil. That, he's going to be so happy about that. That's awesome. Who got the oil? Who got the extra oil? You know? Uh, Sue got the extra oil. Oh, she is going to be so happy. Oh, my God. Sue. We, we almost can't even imagine that being true. And yet it is, at least of God. He loves his debtors. And more than that, he, he, more than what he, he wants, him wanting what is due him, he wants to love and save them. And this dishonest man finally sees that. The name of God is grace. That the plan of God for the world is grace. God want, God's plan for the world is for people to get what they do not deserve. To be given something that should not be ours at his expense. And the most scandalous of all, this delights God. I mean, it really delights him. And it offends religious people that we would give away freely what is His and should by all accounts not be ours to give away. This is His heart. This is ministry. We cancel debts. That's what we do. We cancel debts not owed to us but owed to God and smile doing it. This is His greatness. It's what makes Him different from us. 
And by the way, this is how we build community with each other, incidentally. We trade with each other on the wealth that we did not earn and which we will never own. We trade with each other on the goods of the kingdom. We cancel each other's debts in his name. This is what we do. This is what we do. Love, joy, goodness, miracles, morality, kindness, integrity. These are not things we have access to on our own. <laughs> if we do not steal them from God, we, get them, we can't get them. And he has made his accounts open for our plunder. Isn't that something? Yeah, we cancel debts. Debts owed to God. This is, this is evangelism. This is mission. This is the greatest work of our lives. In 1990, a strikingly handsome pop duo group from Munich, Germany had back-to-back -back hits, eventually winning a Grammy, I think for their song, Blame It on the Rain. No? This was the uh, infamous group, Millie Vanilli. No, Millie Vanilli, infamous because they were stripped of their Grammy, <laughs> stripped of their Grammy, and disappeared into obscurity when it became public knowledge that they had not sung one note of their debut album. <laughs> no, millennials, get on Wikipedia, Millie Vanilli, they had not sung one note on their debut album. The front men were frauds. Handsome, quite handsome, but frauds. <laughs> the story is scandalous because, well, this story, Jesus' story, is scandalous because it is Millie Vanilli winning the Grammy and getting to keep it. That's what this story is. Even though everyone knows the truth, yet some... I mean, yeah, sure, someone else sang on the song for you, but that's cool. Keep the Grammy. We know you didn't do it. Enjoy it. I looked into it. I was, I was interested in who these people were that actually sung. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but I want to know who were these people who actually sang on this album? And I saw an interview with them, and they were like, they loved it. They loved that they could hear their voices on the radio going to number one. They loved it. It's like that doesn't exist in our consciousness, that they would be happy about that. That they would be happy to see other people sort of take the glory for something they had done just because they wanted their thing out there, their voice heard. The real singers were happy, and it, yet that's hard for us to understand. And people don't like it, because you're supposed to do it on your own, all of it. So they stripped them of their Grammy. You know what I think? This is just something I came up with recently as of last night, I think they should have given Brad Howell and John Davis a Grammy too. It's just a group, right? Come on. No, no one else agrees. Okay, I, I just think none of us do anything great without any help anyway. And no Christian should ever receive any award ever then. Because the truth is, we're all frauds. We're all front men. Always he's doing the singing. But we want to pretend like that isn't true. The money I earned, I earned. It's not about the grace of God or the 
or the, 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 the you know, I don't know, the, the, the fortunate place that I was born or anything. No, no, I earned my money. Giving away God's money to make friends in this life and a home and the one to come. Guys, I think we should be giving, I think we should all be giving more than 10% of our income to kingdom causes. I just think that's a, that's a, a baseline. I think we should be wildly generous. I think we should give, be giving money to people we know all the time, just relationally. I mean, from little things like you're out to dinner and someone doesn't look like they can afford it. Oh, do you, you can't afford it? I, ha- I have extra money. You can, I'll pay for your dinner. It's a problem. I think we should be doing it all the time. Oh, you can't pay your, you can't pay your rent or your electric bill? Well, I have some extra money in the bank. I'll pay your electric bill. I'll pay your rent. It's also privatized. All that stuff is sort of like, we'll hear a friend say, I can't make rent, or I can't, oh, that's hard, you know, I'll pray for you. What? <laughs> Don't pray for them. Help them if you have the extra money. Is this what you don't understand? If we live that way, I mean, if we really entered into this sort of ethic of the kingdom, seriously, the way we have other pieces of the kingdom, and just did things differently than the rest of the world, you would never want for anything. Do you understand that when you help your friend pay their rent when they can't pay their rent, that means that one day when you can't pay your rent, don't you worry, your rent will get paid. It's the ultimate, it's the ultimate community. It's the ultimate family. And yet we don't see it that way. We're so, so privatized. We're so particular about our money. Like some of it's mine. I, I earn that. Don't have money to fix your car? Oh, I have some money. Let me help you fix your car. This is how we should, we should live. And the way that we privatize our money, it has nothing to do with Jesus. And we've told ourselves a story that this is my money. It's not your money. It's just not your money. And most of us have a job that pays 100 times a day what someone can get in the same job somewhere else in another part of the country. We're just fabulously rich. And, and in the words of Paul in Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And in the words of Jesus, freely you have received, freely give. This is my last thought here. And what I think this text does so beautifully, it reminds us of the good news of the kingdom itself. I'm so moved by this last line, you know, where Jesus says, you know, before John, it was the law and the prophets that was preached, but now, now, and going forward, it's this other thing. It's the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what's preached, and everybody wants in it. Everybody wants in it. Before John, I mean, he's marking a moment in time in history. Before John, the thing that we, the thing that we thought about, the thing that we, that we preached was the law and the prophets. Think about that for a second. The law and the prophets is how to survive in this world. It is a moral code. It's about justice. It's about basic human rights. It's the expectation of right instead of wrong. It's about social order, the law, the light of God shining in this dark world. The law and the prophets is about how to live in this world in a way that isn't horrible 
That's what the law and the prophets is. That's what was preached before John. But here's what he's saying. Now, since John, since Jesus, it is something else. It is the good news of the kingdom of God that is proclaimed and everyone needs to get into it. Everybody wants to get into it. It's the good news of another world that is possible. Not just the fixing of this world, but the dreaming of a better one. It's not just about how to live in this world, but the hope and promise of another world where Millie Vanilli get to keep their Grammy and dishonest managers are loved and prodigal sons are welcomed home and the poor become richer than the richest man ever were on earth today. The good news of the kingdom is that even though money will never save you, you can, you can spend it in such a way that you can enter into this new world. Let me invite up uh, the worship team. I, I'll give you one last kind of thought, at least as it, as it pertains to the, the good news, this good news of the kingdom of God. I recently read the story, um, a guy, a, an author and journalist called Ron Suskind has written a, a, a beautiful little memoir called uh, Life Animated. And he tells the story of his son, Owen, who was diagnosed severely autistic. It's a story about his experience with his son in struggling through autism. Yeah, th I, th I want to say his son's maybe 23 now, but he tells a story in the very beginning of their, their, their life together where um, Owen ceased to be verbal. He, he could no longer understand people speaking to him, and he could not speak anyone and so um, it had been years I think it, maybe Owen is six when he tells the story Owen is now six it had been it had been years since he had had a conversation since he had been able to speak to or or even Owen understand him speaking to him something just went wrong in the wiring of his brain he could not process speech could process it, but something happened relationally that he wasn't able to. And so the idea, one of the things that his son loved was these sort of uh, early 90s Disney movies, and he would just watch them all day long, and one of his favorites was the movie Aladdin, and there's a character, Iago, I think it was a bird, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the movie. And so this father decided to take a puppet, this puppet of Iago, and he asked his son Owen the question through the puppet. He said, how does it feel to be you? How does it feel to be you? To which Owen replied, after four years of silence, he spoke. And he said, I am not happy. I don't have friends. And I can't understand what people say. Silence is finally broken for this intermediary is created. Suskin would go on to call this process affinity therapy. It's actually something that has some legs in terms of its research now, uh, trying to figure out why that can work for certain kids with severe autism. This this ability to speak through he 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 it changed their life. It changed the life of their family. 
because now all of a sudden they could have conversations through this affinity, this character, through these safe faces. And something was interfering with his ability to not just communicate, but to understand other people. And he felt lost and alone and confused because of it. And this puppet, this little thing, this surrogate, for whatever reason, he could understand. And he believed he could understand. He believed that the puppet could understand him. And the life of their family was radically changed forever. Susskind called it affinity therapy. I want to call it incarnation. So the Father condescends to us to come into our world, this broken, twisted world, to speak our language, to live in our tainted places, to take the form, a form we could understand, and to be someone from whom we could finally hear his voice. This is Jesus. And someone we could speak to. And we could finally say to him, I'm not happy. I don't have eternal friends. And I can't understand what you say. And because of this intermediary, our lives can be changed forever. Guys, as we come to the table, I, I want you to do a couple of things. One is I want you to reflect just for a second on your life of giving. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I mean money. But more than that, this reflection of this kingdom which is to come, this Father that we have which is trying to prepare us for the world where He comes from. And I want to ask you to think deeply, maybe even to allow some conviction to hit you. We... We have all these, um, these pledge cards still out. Many of you have already pledged for this year. Th th by the way, this is how we do it in Underground. We don't want to ask every week for money. What we want to do is ask once a year. You decide what you want to give for this year, and that's how we make our budget. If you don't tell us that, we can't make an accurate budget. So everybody that feels like you're a part of the Underground, my hope is, uh, my request is that each of you would just commit something. Tell us what it is that you're committing to give. And maybe this can be a place where you can really express some courage in your life. And if not here, then somewhere, find somewhere to be courageous with your money and generous. But I don't really want you to do that today. In fact, uh, you know, there's, there's time. The, the website, tampaunderground.com slash pledge. You can go there tomorrow, later in the week. You can bring these back to us next week. I, I, don't, I don't want you to do something impulsive. I want it to be something that comes out of who you are. So if you haven't yet to do that, please take the next six, seven days and just pray and think and look at your budget and be, 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 be a Jesus person in this area too. And like I said, even if you just have a little, find a way to say yes to giving. And then as you bow your heads this morning, as we come to this table, I want you to think about what he gave for you. This, this sterling, staggering example that he has set for us, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. Look at my body, broken for you. I'll take this body which the Father has given me, and I'll let it be whipped and striped and bloodied and humiliated 
tortured for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a promise I make you through my bleeding that your sins can be forgiven. Think about that. We come this morning as we do every week to get our sustenance, to live again through these elements. And what are we taking into ourselves except the giving of God, the generosity, the graciousness, the paying of our debts, which we do not deserve, the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood, the gesture of love, which says, I'll give you everything I have. And Lord, we want to be like that. And as we come to the table this morning, we ask that you make us more like you, that you make us more generous, that we would take a thing like money, which means nothing in the light of eternity. It means nothing. And we would just give it wherever you want it to go, freely, care-free. And that you would look out for us and our needs as you always do. Or break us free from this idol in our time, this idol in our, in our society, in our people, our, our version of Christianity. There's, there's certainly things that are beautiful and good about this thing in American Christianity, but this is not one of them, and I'm sorry, God. I ask for you to have mercy on us and to break us free from it, to make us somehow different not slaves to this other master, but free and generous and courageous and eternally minded. And so you freely gave, so we want to freely give. Guys, this morning when you're ready, when your hearts are ready, uh, these elements are set up, the body and blood of Jesus given for you.